Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Thank you, JJ, for that awesome introduction. And I also want to thank all my listeners from around the world. We are now in 48 different countries and growing strong. The message of never giving up hope and keeping hope as a focus, everyone needs to hear it globally. And this is what's been proven over and over again as I get the comments and reviews from people who say what an encouragement my guests have been to them. So I thank you for listening. I thank you for leaving your comments. I thank you for contacting us. And of course, more importantly, for contacting our guests and connecting with them. My guest today is C.C. James. She is the author of the Ghost No More series, and this is a memoir series about surviving child abuse. Now, we don't talk about child abuse a lot on this show, but we certainly have, and each story is unique. Each story has impact. It's emotional, and we're going to get down to the raw and the nitty-gritty and just talk about what Cece went through and how she came through the other side, how she has is a victor and not a victim anymore, and just share her stories, which she's going to share as well through her uh, memoir series. Cece, good morning. <laughs> hey, how are you? I'm doing good. That's good. You sound good. Let's talk about your childhood. Just tell us as much as you can about what happened, how it happened, why it happened, anything that you want to share? Well, uh, growing up, uh, I don't think you realize you've gone through child abuse in, it, completely until years later. Um, I just grew up thinking that I was doing something wrong and that I couldn't please my parents. And I always felt like I was a disappointment to them and I was failing. Instead, what I didn't understand was I was going through, you know, tremendous child abuse. I share my story and it's not to, to put blame on my past or my parents or, or anything like that. I just like to share it because so many of us don't realize what we've really overcome and, and given ourselves mm. credit for it, see how far we've come and what, what battles we really had to go through to get where we are. Excellent point. Thank you. And a lot of us, you know, we feel like we haven't gone through much because we compare our stories to other people. I was one of those people. I thought that what I'd gone through was really not very much. And so my, my biggest heart in sharing my story is to tell everybody that their story matters 
It's right. important. Right. And it's, they're overcoming it. Even if they don't think it's a big deal, it still has something to give. It's a key to somebody else to help them through their stuff. It's important. That, those are some very legitimate points. That's, um, I really appreciate that because blame is huge. And I was, that was one of the questions actually I was going to ha- ask you. And blame is not where it's at though. No, blame and condemnation, I think, are big key holders in, in keeping a secret and, and making us feel like we failed and didn't get through it and maybe we're weak or something's wrong with us. So what was the pivotal point for you? How did you overcome them? I guess it happened when I was 18. Um, and uh, But really, I, maybe I can start in the beginning if that's okay. Oh, I would appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> That's where we need to start. <laughs> I can feel my, my, it's like all these cows trying to get out of the corral at once. You know, all my thoughts are trying to come out. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was unwanted at birth. Um, my parents were, were hippies, and they just loved that free lifestyle. And I probably came and squashed a lot of that with the reality of what, what parenting was about. And, uh, and I, my, my uh, mom really resented me. I didn't realize that at the time. Life was rough from the very beginning. Uh, when I was two weeks old, I was burnt with a with a with an iron, oh. and ended up being in uh, intensive care unit for a couple weeks with third degree burns on my face and my arms. Obviously, I don't remember that, but right. just from the beginning. Um, and I know that I had a rough couple years because uh, my mom would tell me that she didn't feed me, and she was proud of that. She told me that she wouldn't let me manipulate her with my crying, that she would leave me in the crib until my dad got home. And so my dad was the, my primary caretaker. He'd feed me before he went to work and change me, and he'd come home at night, and, and I'd be in the same wet clothes, and he would change me and feed me again. So I'm sure, though, that that had an effect on being knowing you know, from a young age that there wasn't anybody there when you know, I needed them. So, What's your first recollection, your first memory? My first memory, okay, I, I didn't realize until after I wrote my book how sharp my memory was, hmm. and it wasn't until people were like, how can you remember that stuff? And I don't know how. I didn't know it was odd until, until people started questioning hmm. it. I remember uh, riding my dad's motorcycle, and I was probably, well, we left my dad when I was three, so I was between two and three with my mom, and I remember being punished a lot. Um, even though my dad sounds like a good guy, he, he had his own demons and issues mm-hmm, that he was mm-hmm. dealing with. I had, on my second birthday, I had a black eye from my mom, and I was always dressed in uh, clothing that covered my limbs because my dad would wear rings, and he would hit me too, and I'd have bruises. Oh, oh. So they were trying to hide the bruises. So my mom did leave my dad when, when we were three, or when I was three. Uh, I don't know why she took me. I think she did it because I, I believe is because she wanted to punish my dad. She had a major disconnect from me. And I do remember that, again, about three or four, where she, she wouldn't look me in the eye anymore. And I remember kind of just trying to lean my head down to see if she would make eye contact with me. And, and she just didn't. She just would kind of look into the corner, and that's how she would talk to me. I was told... <coughs> to stay in my room, you know, and I just, I knew the rules. I never questioned them. I didn't know that other kids didn't live that way. 
I just thought that's how children were. You know, and she said things like I was a burden and I did feel guilty for it. When she left my dad at three, uh, we didn't have any place to go. And I remember another early memory is creeping up on these on this porch and it was at nighttime and I knew it was the house of my mom's friend. I knew that much. I knew my mom told me to be very, very quiet, but I didn't understand why I was doing that. And we slept in the chairs and then in the morning we'd creep off and it must've been summertime because I don't remember being cold and Mm -hmm. I didn't think anything about it until years later when my mom told me we had been homeless at that point. Right from the beginning, it was starting to be built in me to be quiet and not to have a voice and stay out of sight. And that's really why I wrote my book, Ghost No More. That's why I titled it that way, because I okay. did feel like a ghost. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom wouldn't look at me. I wasn't. Al- she told me that the house was hers and the room only was mine. When I was probably about four, she, uh, she couldn't find a babysitter. And, and I'm not sure how often this happened, but... She'd bring me to her work, and I'd have to go hide underneath her desk, and I was told to be quiet, and I would stay there all day. And I didn't think to question it, because my life at that point had been so controlled that I just, uh, I just did what I was told, mostly to, not, to try and please her. I really, really wanted her love, and I really, really wanted to please her and be a good girl. Was there any point that you felt any love at all? I have got, and again, I didn't realize until years later how small these memories were, but I've got a couple memories of my mom touching me where it didn't hurt. And oh. it sounds so pitiful when I say it, and I don't mean it like that. Oh. I'm not saying it for a self-pity trip at all. Um, one time, <clears throat> we lived in this teeny tiny house, and the one single bedroom was divided into two by a board, like a plasterboard, and there's a teeny tiny crack just wide enough for me to stick my fingers in. And I was probably about four or five. And my mom slept on the other side and she had her light on. And I was just fascinated by that little strip of light showing through on my side. And so I stuck my fingers through the little crack. And I don't know, I was playing, you know, just marching my little fingers up and down. And I must have startled my mom and she reached out and touched my fingers. And I was so shocked at her touching me, and it was just like this thrill of joy went through me. And so I kind of put my fingers through that crack a couple more times to see if I could get her to do it again. And what ended up happening was she turned out her light, and she dragged her bed out into the living room so that, you know, that would no longer be an option. Yeah, so it would the the, um, loving touches were, there weren't any, really. But again, I didn't know better. I didn't know anything different. It was just me and my mom. That was just how life was. At what point do you recall or do you recall feeling the emotion rejection? Was that, like you said, you didn't know if there would be any, you know, that it was just par for the course. But was there a place where you realized that you actually were rejected or wasn't that until you were older? I didn't know. I didn't see it as rejection. I saw it as me being bad. And every now and then, my mom would dangle like a little carrot out, you know, and she would tell me if I would, if I would be a good girl, she would fix my hair for school. And, you know, I never had in my entire life was a good girl enough for her to do that. Um, and, you know, she, she, my hair was very cut, very short and chopped. And almost now, as I look back, you know, 
I'm, I'm not sure her motivation. Maybe it was the best she could do, or maybe she was trying to make it look like that. I don't know. My whole focus was really to please her. Up until probably my early teens, there was only one time I really saw that she had done something that uh, I knew was wrong. I didn't know what to do with it. I was very shocked. When I turned, after many traumas, when I turned five or six, my mom met a man and uh, who would one day become my stepdad, and he didn't want any kids. My mom came and found me. I was outside, and she said that she wanted to take me blackberry picking. And I remember just being thrilled to pieces about this. And as I tell the story, I'm not making any judgments. I'm just saying what happened mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so people can, can come to their own conclusion of whatever. Um, but anyway, she drove me. We lived in, we lived in the country, um, and she drove me for like 10, 10 miles into this, or longer, away from our house for this blackberry picking. And I remember thinking it was curious because there was bushes close to our house, but I didn't think anything of it. You know, I just sat there quietly. We drove down this really long, long, dark road. Didn't know where we were going. She didn't say anything to me. And we came out into this, this glade of blackberries. And I remember my mom sitting there just staring at them. And I climbed out of the car. And uh, I was excited. It was a sunny day. And she just sit, like sat there and watched me for a minute. And then she got out of the car and she told me to take my shoes off. Actually, she asked. She said, why don't you take your shoes off? And I remember thinking, well, that's so cool. It means she cares about me, which is, I know, a very odd thing to say, but this woman never talked to me, ever. So in my little girl mind, I thought, well, she thinks I'm hot. So I took my shoes off and we started picking blackberries. And my mom had so much control over me that I didn't even eat unless she told me I could eat. So I remember sneaking one blackberry and just feeling really guilty about it. And she looked at me and then she went back to the car and I just kept picking blackberries, trying to be a good girl and fill my bowl up. And then she came back out and she didn't, she went, she didn't say anything. And about three seconds later, smoke started billowing out of the car. Well, probably not three seconds, maybe a couple minutes. And my mom started screaming that the car was going to blow up. And I was shocked. I didn't know really what was happening. We were, it, we were in this glade where the, the blackberries were way taller than me. There was no way out. The car was blocking the way out. Um, and my mom ran. And she ran like down this one little path of blackberries. And so I followed her, not really knowing what was happening. And I could hear her talking to herself. And she was saying, no, it's not this way. It's not this way. I didn't know what she meant. And then she turned around and ran back. And in following her, I'd gotten tangled up in these blackberries. And so the one moment that I knew that she did something wrong was this. When she came by me, you know, stuck in these blackberries, I was like, Mom, help, help. You know, and the area was getting very smoky. Mm -hmm. And she pushed me and she shoved me into the blackberries even more. And uh, she ran away. And I remember being very shocked at that moment that she had done that. That was just the, probably the only time, like I said, the only time I knew she had done something that wasn't right. Um, I ended up pulling myself out of the blackberries and then I went out into the glade where we, where the car was and I was looking for her and I couldn't find her and I was crying and trying to find her and I saw my shoes on the ground and I scooped them up because I didn't want to get in trouble and I just kind of, I don't even know how, I, I feel like it was a miracle 
I saw a spot at the back of the glade where there's less smoke. And I kind of hid back there, and there was another path. And so I started walking down that path, and it got clearer. And um, I remember the end of the path was a big, huge boulder. And back where I lived in this country, these blackberry bushes were really tall, so they really hemmed you in. You couldn't get through them. At the top of the boulder was my mom. And so I was, like, so happy to see her. And I was like, Mom, Mom, help me. And I, I couldn't get up over this boulder. And she didn't look at me. She just jumped and left me. So I saw, you know, I knew I had to get over the boulder. The smoke was getting thicker, and I didn't know how I could do it. And I still don't know how I did it, um, but I did. I climbed this boulder. I, I don't know. It's just, it just was a miracle. When I got to the top, I, I was looking for her, and, and she was far, far, far away. And I was calling for her, and I just kept thinking it was a mistake. Like, hmm. she didn't know I was so far behind her. I jumped off the boulder and started chasing after her, and, Sometimes I'd find her and sometimes I couldn't. I was crying and it was probably, it was at least an hour later when I finally caught up to her. She was, she was standing in a stream and she was bent over and, and she looked at me when I came up and she was heaving, you know, trying to catch her breath and she just kind of rolled her eyes and, and then we ended up walking out of the woods and, and eventually getting help. The thing that makes that story so hard is that she told me for years and years that if I hadn't come after her, she would have never come back for me. I figured that. Wow. And she would tell me that. So, And about two weeks later, we moved in with her boyfriend, and that was that. Now, you said he didn't like children. Did he, did he treat you civilly at all? Um, he did treat me what I thought at the time was civilly. Um, I don't think that it was in looking back on it, but he was he was less of a disciplinarian. It mostly was left everything up to my mom, so I saw him as more, you know, easygoing. Become friends with him at all, like later in later years or No, my mom uh really kept us separated. Okay. I was only allowed to talk to him at certain times. I was allowed like two sentences. Uh, my entire existence was very separate from theirs. I had to use a different door than they could used. Um, I had different food that I could eat. All the food was kept locked in, in, a, in a cupboard with a padlock. Um, my mom did that because she caught me when I was probably 10 sneaking a cookie, and uh, I was very hungry. I didn't know it at the time that it wasn't normal to not be hungry, you know, hungry. Yeah, I was very, very... Most of my bedrooms were either uh, out on a porch, but it wasn't like a porch porch. You know, usually it was built in as a bedroom, but it mm-hmm. still had the windows going into the house or it was like out in the little bedroom made into the garage or it was out built. Somebody built a bedroom in the basement. It was kept very separate. I'm noticing as you're sharing your story that you are sharing it in a reporting sense. There is no... You're not asking for self-pity. You're not asking for pity. And mm-hmm. I appreciate that. You are just reporting what happened. And you're very clear-headed. Very, you, feel, you sound very secure in yourself. Where did you get that self-assurance from? Well, you know, I only have my story and I only have the things that happened to me. I don't have all the answers. Um, but this is what happened. Um, I, was, I was probably about... 13. By that point in my life, the, the beatings and the punishments had, had gotten out of control. 
And I had done something, and I knew I was going to be punished really bad. And I, when I'm talking out of control, I mean, um, she had um, she she would count how many times she hit me with the belt, and it would be about thirty for leaving a sock on the floor. It was for very 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 small things, and I don't know why. I don't know why she did that, but that's what I went through. So this was something that had happened at school and was a big deal. And I knew when I came home, I was, I don't, I don't ever think I thought things like I'm going to die, but my body thought that. My body really, because of the trauma I had gone through, it knew I was in big trouble. And I remember um, I went in through my own door. And I knew my mom was going to find out about what happened. I knew the phone call was coming. I curled up on the floor and, you know, it was just a piece of very thin indoor-outdoor carpet over cement. And I remember it being really cold. And I knew there was nothing I could do and no place I could hide. And I just started crying and curled in this fetal position. I started praying. And, you know, at the time, I didn't know about God, really. I had gone a couple times to church, but it was a very traditional church with a lot of ceremony. And so I didn't understand, you know, I'd gone with my grandparents once or twice I didn't understand what was going on. So I started praying, and all I was saying was Jesus. I was just saying, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And I didn't know really what I was even asking for. I was just so terrified. And I mean, I was, I, I couldn't even hardly breathe. I was in so much fear at that moment. And I could hear the phone ring, and I knew I could hear my dad. He was, he's a tall man, you know, he was six, seven. I could hear him walking oh, to wow. get the phone. And I knew, I knew something bad was about to happen. Um, to give another example, uh, my mom uh, broke a wooden spoon over my face because she didn't like the face I was making. It was very violent where I lived. And I started praying that, and all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, you know, this warmth came over me mm. like a blanket. And, you know, I'm huddled on a cold floor, and I'm curled in the tightest ball possible. It was the only way I could protect myself. And this warmth came over me and all, all my muscles just relaxed and I felt this peace and it just was such a heavy peace. I, I remember it and it impacted me because it was the very first time I ever feel like I took a breath of life without fear. And it was the first time I didn't, I, I felt no fear and I was just relaxed into it and I, and I just wasn't afraid at all of what was going to happen. I totally laid out flat. And I could hear them talking upstairs, and I didn't even react. I didn't think anything about it. Just lay there. And after about 15 minutes, they didn't come down the stairs. I still felt that peace, and I was just like, well, I guess I'm just going to go to bed. And I just went to bed and went to sleep, which is not something I would do, you know, in a situation like that. And so that really gave me a hunger to know what that peace was and why that came and, 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 uh, I know God saved me that day. Um, that punishment should have happened. Hmm. I don't know why it didn't. Um, it was a miracle, and and I'm very thankful for it. And it's impacted me for my whole life. When bad things happen to us, it's just amazing how God can turn them around. It really is. That's yeah. my, kind of my theme for my mm-hmm. life. Is is um, Recognizing how God is giving me beauty for, for all those ashes. And mm-hmm. There's a lot there. And sometimes, you know, I'm going to be honest, sometimes it hurts and sometimes I still struggle. Sometimes uh, I feel like, man, I've gone around and around this mountain. You know, I, 
but most of the time I see beauty for the ashes and I see I see how God restored it and and uh, that's where my hope is. I mean, he's gotten me this far, so I'm thankful. What an amazing attitude you have. You just, it's amazing. I don't have words for it. It's just amazing. So at what point now are we? You're 13. So what happened in your teen years? So um, I also had a lot of sexual abuse that happened. And uh, at 13, it came out. And uh, CPS, it, it was another family member. My mom knew about it. Uh, she would leave me alone with him for hours and hours, starting from the time I was three. And so CPS took me away, uh, Child Protective Services, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I was put into foster care. When was this? I was 13. Okay. That was really mind-blowing um, because I loved my mom so much, and I still love her, even though I see her as a broken person, mm. um, an unsafe person. But I couldn't, the, the crushing, crushing guilt that comes from saying anything about your family, especially when you, when, if you've been programmed like I had been programmed to want to please and you don't say anything ever. And I just, it was so overwhelming. Um, my parents fought to get me back and they did get me back after a few weeks. Um, this was in, you know, the late 80s and things were different back mm-hmm, then. Mm-hmm. Uh, the punishment started right away as soon as I got back and the overwhelming guilt and the, also the hope that was snatched away because, you know, I, there was hope in leaving and to have it snatched away and to then be brutally put back into the abuse was, was very hard. Um, my mom ended up finding a counselor that taught her new ways to abuse me. She wasn't a licensed counselor. She was hooked with a, um, another foster home. And it was, it was built, it was uh, named like a Tough Love Foster Home. Oh, okay. Back then, Tough Love was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was an abusive foster home. Most of the kids there were using drugs and having, you know, some, some struggles in that way and acting out in that way. Um, and the foster mom didn't ever talk to me when I was there. And my mom would just say, you want foster care? You've got foster care now. And I would never know when I was going to go there. You know, I'd come home from school and she'd be like, okay, pack your stuff. You left a fork in the dishwash, dish drainer. You're going to foster care. And so that was kind of how my life went for a couple of years after that. Um, and then we moved and, you know, now I'm 16 and I have a job. I, I finally get a job and I'm starting to, I think the teenage rebellion, you know, I don't know if I was rebellious, but I, things started looking differently. I didn't like being treated the way I was being treated. I was suddenly so overwhelmed with, with a what I called a dark pit inside of me of pain that I couldn't, I, I had to protect myself. I was, I was starting to self-destruct. And so I kind of started, you know, not wanting to please my mom as much. I started smoking. Um... And, and really started reaching the, my end, the end of my rope. Um, I ran away for the first time right at the end of turning 16. And I was forced to come home. And, you know, a lot of people have asked me who read my story, you know, were there people who saw? And there were people who saw what was happening. 
every now and then somebody would try and help. But again, this was this was back in the eighties, late eighties, and, and things were different then. And um, and I I would didn't really want help, even as desperately as I did want help, because I would never betray the secret. Mm. You just you know you didn't do that. That was self protection. Hmm. So uh, I ended up coming home, and my mom again was just uh, very, very brutal to me. Um, and then I started, and you know, I'm going to just say this right here for anybody listening. You know, I don't want to trigger anybody by anything I say. Um, but I did start uh, self harming, trying to hurt myself, and uh, cutting myself becoming bulimic, um, anorexic. And these were areas, these were tools that I used, very sick tools to help control the pain that I was feeling and also to control if I wanted to feel pain. I was had, it was my first taste of having control over that. And uh, so I, I, I kind of went into a downward spiral and probably my 17th year was was. I would say the worst year of my life. I don't know how I made it through that. Uh, pretty miraculous, really. <laughs> what happened? Just every, um, everything that you're talking about, you mean, and just compounding? Everything compounded, and uh, I ended up, I ended up, like I said, becoming very suicidal. And my mom found out, and she just told me that she had bought me a coffin, and she described it. And she just said that uh, she was going to bury me with a book of poems that I had written and that she looked for me in the ditches. And I just kind of gave up. I started doing really crazy things, like lying in the street. And I, 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 did, I just gave up. I gave up. I couldn't do anymore. And I ended up in, in the hospital. Um, I tried to, I slipped my wrists and somebody found me. And the ambulance was called, and it was just a horrible nightmare. And they took me to uh, the hospital. And I remember the entire way down, the ambulance driver was like, what's wrong with you? You have a perfect life. You know, why are you acting this way? Spoiled kids, blah, blah, blah. And, and I believed him because I didn't, I, I still believed it was my fault. And if I was a good girl, you know, I, this wouldn't be happening. Yeah, it was, it was really, really hard. Um, while I was in the hospital, I, I got released three days later. You, you have a 72-hour hold that you, you get put under when you do something like that. And when I came out, uh, my mom was less than supportive. Uh, my best friend at the time called me, and uh, she said, she asked me to go for a car ride with her. And, you know, I'd just gotten out of the hospital. And, and this gal had done so much to help me. You know, she had dragged me out of roads. She had tried so many times to help me. But when you're teenagers, you really don't know how to help each other except to listen. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. um, and she asked me to go for a car ride. And, and we had talked about moving to another state together. You know, I'm 17 now. And I just had to tell her, I can't do it. I cannot. I can't. You, I, I, I'm at a place right now. If, I'm, if I leave this house, I think I'm going to do it. And she kept going, come on, come on, let's go for a car ride. And... I said no, and so she said, I have a card for you, and she left me a card, and that, that night I told my mom, okay, that's it. I just want to, I'm not going to be able to make it. I, I, I'm going to kill myself. So she drove me down to the hospital again, 
And about maybe the next day, um, they came down to visit me. My mom and my stepdad came down to visit me while I was at the hospital. And I remember my mom grinning. And this was the first time they'd ever come to visit me at the hospital. And she was smiling. And they sat in the bed, and I was so happy to see them. And my stepdad said, we have something to tell you. And I thought that they were going to tell me. I, I didn't even know. I just was so happy to see them. Mm-hmm. I thought they were nervous, you know. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, your friend killed herself last night. And so that's why that year was so hard and so dark. And I felt so much to blame for her doing that. And I hadn't even known that she felt that way Wow. when I was feeling that way. So from that point, I, I didn't go home, really. I, I ended up moving with somebody else. I couldn't go back home. At the end of that year, um, I just, I don't even know how I made it. I really don't. I still continue to go to school. I just, I just was, when I think back at that time, I just was like, I really was a ghost. (laughs) Perfect name to your book. Now you say your title of your book is Ghost No More. So that indicates that you were free. Mm-hmm. I was. Are you ready to share that, or did you want to share some more about your story before that point? Oh, no. Um, this is where the story starts. Okay. Okay. Go for it. <laughs> so I um, I ended up moving from place to place. You know, I was homeless. And as a homeless teenage girl, a million bad things happened, even more than what I've shared mm-hmm. Um, I ended up finding a home with four people who were looking for a roommate. And it was the first time that I actually was kind of in a sort of stable environment. I I got a crush on one of the guys. And we started dating. And I call him, his name is Jim. I was really scared of Jim in a way because I wanted to hide all of this ugliness that Mm. that I thought was me. Mm -hmm. And I, I always felt like I never was going to fit in. You know, I never had whatever was missing there's something missing inside I knew it when I look at other people I I just felt like the odd man out and sometimes I felt like the monster just that Hmm. there was something so terribly wrong with me so I try and hide that around him and he fell in love with me and I slowly fell in love with him Uh, and actually not that slow because our relationship (laughs) was was quick but (laughs) but uh, I was slower than he was um but the pressure of knowing he was going to reject me, because I just knew that in my bones, I knew he was going to reject me. It, it, I, I thought I just I got suicidal again. And oh my goodness! I hid it from him. I just knew that this, the rope, the rug was going to get jerked out from under my feet again. And rather than wait for that to happen, I ended up deciding to go and hurt myself. And so I went into the bathroom and and I started. I used my razor and, and began to hurt myself. Um, and I don't know how or why, but Jim knew something was going on. I don't know why I, I totally hit it. And so he started knocking on the door and asking me what was going on in there. And I was like, um, I'm in the bathroom, you know, trying mm-hmm, to be casual. Right, right. And he's like, open the door now, open it. And uh, at this point, uh, again, I don't want it to be a trigger warning, but, um, I had probably cut myself about eight or 10 times. And so there was blood everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just freaked out and I started trying to clean up the blood. It was all over the floor, everywhere. Um, 
and I was just trying to keep my voice casual too. And, and all of a sudden he starts kicking the door and yeah. I, I can't even tell you that was the worst moment of my life. It really was because I knew he was going to come in and see me and he was going to reject me mm-hmm. and he kicks the door open and he walks in and he sees me and he just walks right over to me. He's like, looks for where the blood's coming from. And for me, it was, it was on my, my ankles. And he, uh, he picked me up and he took me into the other room and, and he grabbed a washcloth. I remember he got a washcloth and he held it to my feet and he started crying. And he was, <laughs> he was kissing my feet and telling oh my me, goodness. don't ever do this again. And I love you. And I never did it again. Oh, what a healing. It was a huge healing. To be loved when I felt the most unlovable, unlovable when I had been rejected so many times. And it wasn't long after that they started telling me, you know, he was a Christian. And we didn't live like, I mean, we were drinking, we were partying, we were single, our 18-year-olds, you know, we weren't, he wasn't a typical Christian, you know. <laughs> and he told me that he, that God loved me and that Jesus loved me. And I remember thinking, what are you talking about, you know. But I remembered, I remembered that peace I'd felt as a kid. And I just knew I had to know more about this. And so he, he told me that, you know, just talk to me about how Jesus loved me and how it had nothing to do with me and who I was as far as my badness that I saw, but that God saw me as valuable and awesome and that he wanted me here and that I was planned for and that he didn't plan for all that bad stuff to happen to me. And, and I don't know. I just, his words made me push in, you know, it it wasn't all better. I Mm -hmm. asked, I, I became a Christian and, Things were not like immediately okay at all, not at all. Um, I still was so incredibly wounded, and I'd ask God over and over and over to save me because I didn't really ever believe that it had happened and uh, that he was going to accept me. So it was still very much a journey. But something did happen that night, and, and that was the first time you know, I tell you the first time I didn't feel fear. Well, 18 and, and uh, being with Jim is the first time I ever felt happy. Oh, my goodness. And, 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 and when after I became a Christian, it was the first time I ever felt happiness. You know, I never felt it before. I didn't know it was missing. So I really saw it when it came. Up until then, you know, my life was, even the good moments was, had so much shame and guilt and fear. Mm-hmm. And those feelings are so, such deep dark feelings that feelings like happiness can really get overshadowed and yeah so that's how that started it wasn't an immediate you know yay I'm fixed there was nothing like that um but I knew love that was another thing that happened is that for the first time I really knew what love was and so what happened I guess then was I tried to love my mom and I was putting it together a little bit that there was something wrong. <laughs> I, know, I know that sounds ridiculous. I, I can't explain it except that this had been my life from the very beginning. That's right. It's all you knew. 
It really is. And I knew other people did have different experiences, but in my mind, it was because of who I was that I was a bad person that caused my experience mm. to be the way it was. But I tried to love my mom and because uh, I knew that was the only thing that was going to change the situation was if she really knew love, if she could know God's love. Um, and, and I went forward in my life and I, I ended up having children. And uh, <clears throat> the next big step I saw was that, oh, before I got had my first child, I did go to counseling and we really dealt with my, my best friend who had killed herself. And I think that that was really a gift from God too, because that was, that was a chain that I had felt I had done, you know, as in a, like I, that was my choice. And, and so God kind of healed me of that and let me know that when people are suicidal and depressed, you know, you, you can't not, you can't make that choice for them. They're going to make whatever choice they are going to make. And, Really, all you can do is, because I've had other friends in that place, I, you, you can't fix it for them. You, you can help as much as you can, but you can't fix them. Um, you can be there for them. Mm-hmm. But if anybody were to call and tell me that they were suicidal, I wouldn't try and fix them. I would call 911. Um, somebody else has to get involved. It mm-hmm. cannot be. It's too much of a burden for one person to take to be having the responsibility of someone else's life and their choices. Um, and it really is that we all do have our own choice to make in this life. And, uh, it's hard when people make bad ones, including my mom, you know, but, um, so when I had my daughter, uh, I loved having my, my kids are such a huge gift to me. And I just was so thankful for each one. How many Um, children do you have? I have four. And what's really cool about that, if I can just backtrack real quick. There was another prayer I had made as a kid. Um, I remember praying, God, if I, if I can have kids, if you'll give me that, I would love to have a girl. But if you really want to bless me, I'd like to have a girl and a boy. But if I really, really could have anything I wanted, I want two girls and two boys. And that's what I ended up having. <laughs> and I was just a little girl and I prayed that. So that was just neat that he had heard that and he cared, you know. That's right. But so when I had my daughter, um, one thing I started noticing with her was that I started feeling very guilty as a parent. Um, I started apologizing to her over and over and not feeling good enough. And somehow God revealed to me that I was seeing myself in her life just the way I saw myself in my mom's life Hmm. as the monster, as the one that was going to mess it up, somebody not good enough. And so I did join a support group, and it was extremely difficult. Um, I didn't want to do it, Mm. but I did. And we went through a book called The Changes That Heal and another book by, I believe, the same author, which is called Boundaries. And both of those books were God just just used them in my life uh, to teach me some truths that, that... that I, you know, you, most people learn when they're growing up about where it's okay to have boundaries, what a boundary looks like, how do you know if somebody's breaking your boundaries, um, you know, and, and so I, I learned to kind of have a voice and stand up and, and also I saw myself as somebody who, yeah, who had issues, but, but God saw me as 
the perfect mother for my kids, the, the one who could mother them the way that they needed to be mo- mothered. And when I say perfect mother, I don't mean that he saw me as perfect. Mm-hmm. He saw me as the right choice. And uh, the other thing, you know, he released me from feeling like I needed to be the perfect mother in that he, he shared, if I was the perfect parent, you know, then why would my kids ever need God? They would just come to me for <laughs> to answer all their problems and help them. So that kind of that kind of released me from some expectations. And then he showed me that part of my job was to teach them unconditional love and how I love them and, and how they love me and how we can how we are messy and and that's what unconditional love is and what forgiveness is by having them forgive me and me forgiving them and those were really the important things. And uh and making sure that they felt heard. Um, a tool he had given me was using the Mad Bed, and which is a horrible name. But I don't know why I came up with it that way. But, <laughs> but they would say they want to talk on the Mad Bed, and we would go to my room, and and that was my clue to be quiet and just to listen to whatever they had to say and not to get mad. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then he showed me that I had that with him, that I could come to him anytime and be like, okay, I'm on the Mad Bed, and and vent and be real and be disappointed and be disillusioned and share all that with him and know that he wasn't mad. He wasn't going to be mad at me for being real and that he wanted that realness and that authenticity and it was okay. It was okay to be me. And so those are some of the things that, you know, he's brought me through. Um, he did bring me through forgiving my mom. And that's a difficult thing because she never said sorry, and I knew she never would. But it wasn't for her. It was for me. It released me so I could move forward. And, and it wasn't a one-time deal. And, I, in fact, yesterday I had to forgive her for something I'd forgiven her for a hundred times already. But I see it like an onion. And okay. each time you, have to for, you might go a little bit deeper. And there's no failure in needing to revisit situations and painful things and having to forgive again, you know, it's part of the journey. That's an excellent definition of forgiveness. You're not forgetting. You're just forgiving. Excellent. It releases you from bitterness. Absolutely. Because that's why I think God wants us to forgive is it's not because he thinks anybody deserves it, but it's because he has what's best for us. And and that bitterness is a very, very dark chain that really feels good in the moment, but it really robs. One of the things that you touched on is that forgiveness is a choice. I think that is crucial because we can choose to hoard the bitterness, as you said, or we can choose to forgive. And the only one that we are hurting when we don't forgive is ourselves because the other party isn't necessarily even aware of that oh, they've for done sure. something wrong. So. Or even to the point where they, they like that you're bitter. Yes. People who are, yes. have mental illness in that way, where they like to hurt people, they're, they're liking the effect that they have, the lasting effect. And making you miserable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, how old are your children? Oh, they're, they're all, gosh, three of them are adults, and, and my baby's almost an adult. <laughs> it just time goes Bye. <laughs> I had my kids very young, so I, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm in my early 40s, so I'm not, I don't know. 
<laughs> no, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. <laughs> and now is your mom still alive? She is alive. Um, and actually, this is, this is kind of sad to say, but um, I didn't ever give up on her. Uh, she finally gave up on me. And uh, that was a gift. That was a gift from God because I couldn't let her go. You know, I remember one time feeling like the Lord had said to me, you know, do you want a relationship with your mom? And he, I felt like, I felt like I had a choice, you know, there was no mm. right or wrong, but he, he wanted me to know that she wasn't going to change. And I, I'm not saying she couldn't change. I'm just saying that's the feeling I felt at the time. Mm-hmm. And what he was going for is, I don't think he wanted me to be disappointed. And, you know, I chose still to love her and, and hope that she would I know something's wrong and I I want the best for her, you know, and I want her to get healed and and be free. I mean, that's that's really exciting to me to think that that could happen, but it's not going to happen through me. You know, that's something that she's going to have to choose and, you know, and that's something between her and God. And and, uh, when she decided through certain actions that she no longer wanted me in her life, I was upset and there's hurt there mostly because I of grief that what I'd always hoped for is never going to happen. Right, right. But there's freedom. And how long ago was that? Uh, three years. Okay. And your father? So, unfortunately, my real father, you know, he, uh, he had his demons. And uh, I, he never knew what happened to me. Mm. Um, we, we left the... I, I hadn't seen him since I was right. 14. Okay. Last time I saw him. And yeah, he didn't really want contact with me either. And unfortunately, he has died. And you were the only child, weren't you? I am the only child yes, on both yes. sides, yeah. Yeah. Oh. And now tell us about your books. Mm-hmm. So I wrote my books. When I first wrote Ghost, like I said, my heart was to give a voice to anybody who's ever felt this way. And it's not to compare. I, I don't want anybody to read my story and feel like, oh, well, I haven't gone through that much. It's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all relative, isn't it? All relative. It really, really is. It's your story. And don't, don't, I validate you and I validate what you've gone through. Mm-hmm. But I wrote so that people would have a voice and know that their story was important. I, I've gotten to hear back from so many readers and it, that has been the part of this journey that blew me away was, um, hearing them tell me, wow, you really come through a lot, you know, because like so many other survivors, I didn't think that my story was that big of a deal. And that's encouraging. And I am an advocate for all, all you know, adult survivors of child abuse and, and abuse in general, because it's a, I want them to know there's hope. There is hope. And uh, that you weren't those negative words and actions that came against you that you are made for good things and you're here for a reason and a purpose, you're needed. Excellent. And now you have another series as well, right? I do. Um, really quick on my Ghost No More, there, there's three books on that. My okay. first one is Ghost. My second one is My Husband's. And then I have a third novella. And some, some readers wonder why I have that one. And it was dealing with another issue uh, of sexual abuse that I hadn't been able to face when I wrote Ghost. <laughs> so, so after some healing had happened, I was able to write that story out. Um, and since then, I've moved forward, and, and I have a fiction series. 
And again, it's still about, you know, overcoming things and finding the good and beauty in life. And, and it's called Wrecked No More. And I loved writing it. <laughs> and that, that is how many in the series? Uh, I'm writing book three right now. So okay. it's two. Well, I know that the guests are going to want to get your books. I mean, I just can't wait. I just feel like I want to, you know, it's not because your story is, is awful, but it is because of who you are and what you have become. You have a phenomenal strength and tenacity and hope. You're the picture of hope. You know, you're the calendar girl. <laughs> because no matter what you went through, you would you were looking for you weren't you weren't blaming. I mean, it's just it's so hard to put into words. You know, I hear so many stories of people went through so many things, and like you said, granted it is relative, um, but they blame, 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 and then they have to deal with dealing with the blame. Mm-hmm. And you, it's like you passed over all that because you took it all on yourself, and it was you that was healed. It's not because you know I. I I just am who I am, and, you know, I hope I don't come across like, I don't know, I'm just thankful. <laughs> you come across as a beautiful, caring, understanding, empathetic individual who has, I'm, I know that there's a really light side of you, even though the story was very heavy. I can sense it, even when you were talking about the mad bed and the way yeah. you raised your children, you know, that there, that no matter... It didn't control your life, you know. You you got the upper hand, and you found happiness. You found love. You found peace. You found all those things that people search for and never thought that they would have, and are always looking for them. And you have found them. You have arrived, girl. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> and I know there's more to come. My goodness, you're still young, you know. <laughs> No, it has been indeed a pleasure. I don't know what to say, except that I had no idea what this interview was going to be. You shared very little with me before the interview, and I am just so thrilled that you shared what you did, and I know there will be so many people that will relate, and of course, so many people that are going to want to contact you and to read your books. I thank you for being an awesome, awesome guest, Cece. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity opportunity to be here. Um, I've been looking forward to it. You will connect with the listeners, I am sure, in very special and deep ways. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Cece. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.